great to be together with you all once again. Um, if you're visiting with us this morning, we want to welcome you. And we want to say that this uh, Sunday morning's uh, worship gathering is different than, than all the rest. And I hope that next week you'll find that next week's is different than all the rest as well. Um, we're trying not to make uh, a carbon copy of every week, but do as the, Lord, as the Lord and the Spirit directs us in worshiping and honoring Him. Today we had the glory of, um, and the blessing of having the kids sing for us this morning, so that's always a, always a blessing. But regardless, we want to welcome you. If you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. I hope that you find uh, our family here warm and welcoming, uh, and most of all, I hope that you find it honorable to our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, if, uh, if you would like, please feel free to fill out one of the connection cards in front of the seats in front of you. Uh, that lets us know who's worshiping with us, but also gives you an opportunity to share any prayer requests that you might have for us. Know that we, we gather each week and we pray through every request that is given. Now, I could spend a lot of time and just read off everything that's in the bulletin, but our lovely office manager, Robin Cobb, does a fantastic job of doing and informing everyone through our bulletin, through our bulletin board, through our newsletter. So I'm going to encourage you to honor her by reading what she writes, okay? All right. Uh, but please, take, take notes of, of your bulletin for any upcoming events. Also on the bulletin board for anything to sign up for. There's plenty of stuff that's going on in and around the church, places to get involved and places to serve as well. Let me pray for us. Father, what a blessed time it is to be, um, to be in your presence. Lord, when we don't look at this time as something that uh, we take um, for granted, that we take advantage of, but Lord, something that we recognize um, comes and has come with a cost. Lord, we humbly gather in your presence we take the time and we take it seriously, Lord, to set this time aside for you, to worship you, to grow in you, to honor you, Lord, with our, with our presence, with our attention, and with our teachable spirit. And Lord, I just pray this morning that as we, um, as we approach your word and the word that you have for each one of us this morning, that we are just that, that we're teachable, that we remain students, not only during this time, but lifelong students. Students of the Word of God, as it permeates our hearts and our spirits, Lord, to teach us and to mold us into a greater likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ, who we know was the perfect representation of a glorious and holy God. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are two sermons deep now in a new message series entitled Bibology, and I'm really intrigued by how many of you have come up to me and, and uh, are wordsmiths, or you are ling linguists, and uh, telling me that uh, you know, either you've heard of the word or a similar word, um, or that somebody else has come up with it, and therefore I'm no great inventor of the word <laughs> Bibology, so thank you for keeping me humble. <laughs> so, the, the the premise of this message series is to give us some instruction 
or more or less a, some, some guiding principles whenever we are approaching Bible study, whenever we study Scripture. Now, I'm going to assume that each of us are reading, at least on occasion, our Bibles, the Word of God. And as we do that, oftentimes we run across passages or sections or stories or accounts that seem to be a little bit difficult to understand and decipher, especially as we're doing it within uh, the mindset of, um, of the American culture, of Western civilization. We carry a lot of these, um, a lot of these expectations and a lot of these, um, I guess, ideas into our Bible study. So rather than try to give us a systematic approach to, hey, you need to tick this off, you need to do this, this, and this as you read through Scripture in order to understand it, I felt like God was saying, you know what, there's, there's just a set of principles that we need to have accepted within our spirit that as we read Scripture and we remind ourselves of these principles and values, then the Spirit of God will reveal to us each individually what it is His Word is saying. Not only what it said then, but what it means to us now and how to apply it in our lives. And last week we talked about the, 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 what I figure is the biggest overarching principle that we have to recognize is that God is sovereign. The sovereignty of God, God's total control of all things is extremely important that we, that we accept and know as we open up His Word. Because it helps us to accept the things that we know are inerrant, that are without error, that are perfect and true. And we recognize that we don't necessarily have to understand it to know that God's sovereignty, that He is glorifying Himself in the midst of His Word, of the story. But there are other principles as well, and those are the further sermons. I couldn't just do a sermon series with one sermon. It wouldn't just be a sermon. It wouldn't ser a series, would it? So the second series, the second sermon in the series, specifically today, we're going to be talking about justice and grace. I want to start by telling you a little, a quick story. Uh, this man, does anybody recognize this, this man? I hope not, because he died a long time ago. Uh, this is Fiorello LaGuardia. Uh, you may recognize LaGuardia Airport in New York City. So LaGuardia was uh, one of the famous mayors of New York City, and probably has gone down in history as being probably one of the most famous mayors in history of statesmen and, and political leaders. Uh, he was known for a, a, a stern and an iron hand whenever it came to cleaning up the city. He was often seen in pictures as he was trying to, to eradicate the, the gangs and the mobsters of New York City with a sledgehammer, sledgehamming, uh, or sledging the uh, um, uh, illegal slot machines that the mobsters were bringing in to the city. And he, was take, he, took, he ended up taking all these slot machines, put them out on a barge, took them out into the bay and dumped them in the sea. I mean, this man was, he, he wanted to clean up the city. He was a man of justice. He wanted, to see, he wanted to see what was right prevail for all people. Well, there was a particular time that, um, that LaGuardia, and as in, during that time in the early 1900s, it was permissible for a mayor of the city to go in and relieve the magistrate uh, of his duties at a police station to sit on the bench for, you know, to, to, to listen to, um, uh, to any type of 
civil lawsuits or civil cases or even criminal cases that were kind of trivial at the time. So he, he went into this particular police station at one point, in his, uh, one point in his political career. He relieved the magistrate of his position and he sat on the bench and he was therefore going to be the one to hear the cases that came before the magistrate that day. And in the midst of this particular day, this scrawny, feeble, little old man walked in to the police station, escorted by two police officers. And LaGuardia says, sir, what is your offense? And the police officer said, this man is, has been arrested for stealing a loaf of bread. And LaGuardia says, uh, sir, what do you have to say for yourself? He says, yes, sir, I stole the loaf of bread. He goes, my family was hungry. Now, keep in mind, this was in the, the 20s and the 30s during the Great Depression. Uh, people were suffering throughout the country, throughout the world. And LaGuardia looked at him and he says, well, I'm a just man, and I must hand down justice in this case, as I always do. So I hereby fine you $10 for your offense. And then he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out $10 and he lays the $10 on the bench and he says, here is your fine. Then he takes the $10 back. He puts it in his pocket and says, your fine has been remitted. He says, but sir, you're not free to go yet. He goes, actually, I am going to fine everyone in this courtroom for living in a city that causes a man to have to steal bread to feed his family. So everyone in this courtroom is now fined 50 cents. Bailiff, go around the courtroom and collect 50 cents from every person in the courtroom. And they did, and as the story goes, the man walked home with $47.50. You know, justice and grace are two things that are extremely difficult to be enacted together. In fact, mankind finds it almost impossible to do them together. Because if you think about it, if you want to be just, then you have to hand down a sentence of some sort. But if you're going to be graceful, if you're going to show mercy through grace, then that means you have to, to <clears throat> excuse me, refute the sentence. And if you refute the sentence, then are you, are you just? So you see where this tension lies. And as mankind has struggled with this throughout our history of trying to be just, but also to try to show grace and mercy at times and, and not to offend others that need to be shown justice. And as we've struggled with that, God our Father has coined and discovered a perfect combination of the two. He's a master of both. Once again, because as we learned last week, because God is sovereign and what he says and what he does is always right. Because the measure by which he chooses to do what's right is by him, right? So we'll begin with justice, a God of justice. God's justice is a major consistent theme throughout the Bible. And that's going to help us every time we open up the scriptures to read the stories, the anecdotes, the, the, the specific um, um, accounts within scripture, specifically in the Old Testament. 
Now, if anyone usually comes to me with a question or a problem about the, the activity of God, it's usually something that's found in the Old Testament. And what they don't normally like to hear me respond is, well, God is just. And they're going, what do you mean? I said, well, God is just. He always does what's fair. Well, when they look at the two parties, the two human parties, they're like, well, that doesn't seem fair to me. Well, you have to remember, who was it eternally that's been offended in the fall and the sin of mankind? It's been God. So his justice is always true, is always right. Now, this is, we can't confuse God's justice with other perversions of justice, which I feel like we do it in our society and culture. Social justice has been one that's come up lately. Uh, in our culture. You know, this is not, God's justice is not social justice. Social justice is doing what's, doing what's just as being relative to the moment, to someone's feelings, because they felt like they have been wronged. You know, and oftentimes the social justice is determined in the court of public opinion. There's a floating scale of what's right and wrong, of what's um, uh, there's a floating scale of what is, what is true and the measure and the standard of goodness. It's also not the same as our criminal justice because our, our criminal justice in our country is based on the U.S. Constitution and, and human laws that therefore have been, um, have been um, birthed out of the Constitution. So it's different than than criminal justice. It's also different than civil justice, which is merely a, a, a plaintiff or a person's desire to hold another person accountable for the wrong that, that's been committed to them. Instead, God's justice, God's justice uses His sovereignty, again, connecting what we talked about last week, uses His sovereignty and His holiness as the standard of measure by which he is just, by, the, by what he uses to call right and wrong, fair and impartial. Anything that falls short of God's sovereignty and holiness is therefore to be held accountable and to be punished by him who is sovereign. Now again, remember, as we're reading through Scripture, something to always be reminded of is that mankind, from the time of Adam and Eve, have offended God. We've offended God by our disobedience and by our sin. We have fallen short of His holiness, of His perfection. So it's God that is always, He's always the offended, and mankind is always the offender. Now whether or not we look at it through human eyes and we feel like someone is a good person or someone is innocent, in God's eyes, that person, you and I and anyone else that's living and breathing and ever has been and ever will be, is an offender. It doesn't matter what we think because we weren't the ones that were offended initially. God was. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12, Paul says it, I think, as about as well as anyone in Scripture. There is no one righteous not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. 
He also says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. Now that doesn't mean all up to the point of Paul. He's talking about all of mankind, which includes you and I. And I don't believe that anyone in here, including myself, would hold their hand up and say that I've never done anything to offend God. Because if you did hold up your hand, at that point, you would be an offender. Because you are a liar. You see, what helps us to see some of the, some of the death, the destruction, the plagues, the atrocities in Scripture, what helps us to understand that is that God's justice, whatever happens, whatever He is in control of, is the norm. God's justice, handing down just sentences, is the norm in Scripture. And we should read Scripture with that in mind. That any time we see someone that has been judged and justice being handed down by God to a person or persons, that is the norm. Because mankind is normatively disobedient. God's just judgment, His justice should be seen as the norm, not the exception. Now, in our world and today, we think of death and war and judgment and, and um, those types of things as the exception. What we like to think is what, what's normal is for people to be loving and caring and compassionate and forgiving and merciful. But what everyone deserved from Adam and Eve until now is death. And any time that sentence is handed down, God is being just. God is being just because he is, he is convicting the offender. Instead, we should look at grace being the exception. Grace is always the exception. Just, being, ju being, being judged and justice is the norm. Grace is the exception. And that's why often we see pockets of grace and mercy, specifically in the Old Testament. They're, they're, they're few and far between. They don't come quite as often as we have these long stories of, of justice and judgment through the books of like uh, Chronicles and Kings and Judges. You read through those books and you're going, oh my goodness, this is just it's treacherous. And in the grand scheme of things, God is being just for a people that have offended him. But on occasion, he shows acts of grace. You see, it's out of God's sovereign choice and out of his abundant love and mercy that he relents on occasion and shows periodic grace, specifically in the Old Testament. I love this, I love this quote from theologian Millard Erickson. Since salvation is indeed the gift of God, sometimes the justice of God is impugned, which, and I put the definition of impugned in case you didn't know what that was. It means that we question God's justice or we challenge God's justice. And we challenge it on the grounds that some receive the grace of God and others do not. It's not fair. 
That any are saved at all, however, is the amazing thing. And that should be the thing that we rest our hearts and minds on. For if God gave to all what they deserve, then none would be saved. Grace is the exception. Grace is God relenting, withholding, with, with, with restraining himself from the justice that we all deserve. And not just you and I, but all throughout history. Let me give us a quick case study. And this from the Old Testament, because a lot of this does relate to Old Testament scriptures. As we're reading, in fact, how many of us steer, now let's just be honest. How many of you steer clear of the Old Testament because it's just too darn tough and brutal to read? All right, just a few of you? All right, and the rest of you are liars. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't know that for sure. <laughs> but it is. We, 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 we get to these passages in the Old Testament and we start to stumble through these things because we're going, man, it's just, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to tell my neighbor how much God loves us and how much he cares for us, and how he gave us his son uh, as an act of grace and mercy and, and salvation and redemption. And the first thing that they're going to do is, is open up the book of Judges. And they're going to just see like it's, it's like it's like the movie 300. It's just nothing but blood and guts and gore. And they're going, wow, in the world, this, this God that you're talking about is not the God that I keep reading about. Let me give us an example from the Old Testament. A lot of us may remember or recollect this story in Exodus when Moses is up on the mountain and he's receiving, he's receiving the law. In uh, a lot of, you know, if you're Charlton Heston, you're just getting the Ten Commandments. But if you're Moses, you're getting the complete law. Okay, so it takes, if, if, G, if God was only given the Ten Commandments, it would have taken about 10 minutes, he would have been back down with the, with the group in camp. But that's not the case. He was giving Moses the entire law. And because he was giving Moses the entire law, it took a little time. So Moses is up on this mountain, Mount Sinai, for an, un, uh, an unknown amount of time. And in the time that he was up there, all the Israelites who were encamped below started thinking, well, he's either gone, God's taken him, God's killed him, we're not sure what happened to Moses, but he's not coming back. So, we need a God to worship. And what they do is they put all of their gold together. They take their earrings and their jewelry and their necklaces and all this stuff off. And they give it to Aaron, Moses' brother, who should have known better. And Aaron fashions a golden calf. And they all start to bow down and worship this golden calf. Now, the odd thing about it is, and this is kind of an aside, when when. When Moses comes back and he approaches Aaron and he says, Hey, what have you done? Moses, and Aaron said, Look, I, you know, I threw all the gold in the fire and out came the calf. <laughs> even, my, even Aaron lied. But regardless, the people bowed down to this golden calf. And as they were doing this, as they were having this massive celebration and worship service at the base of Mount Sinai, while, while God is speaking to Moses, God saw all of that. And he told Moses, he says, my anger is now burning against your people. 
Go now and let my anger fester because I'm going to destroy these people. And Moses steps in and he says, Whoa, whoa, whoa come on, Lord. Think about this for a moment. Now you brought all of these people out of Egypt and you're going to make them the laughing stock of all the nations in the world because you are a God who loves and saves and yet you brought all these people out, you saved them from slavery and now you're going to kill them all. What is that going to make you look like? And in my mind I'm going, do you think God cares? Because A, He is sovereign and B, He is just. And these people had now bowed down to another God. He would have been just to have wiped them out. But in Moses' conversation with the Lord God, God relented. In Exodus 34, 14, he says that he relented concerning the disaster that he had said that he would bring on his people. Now, as the story goes, Moses does return back to the camp. There is a, an... Uh, a a short-lived judgment that happens within the camp. Uh, A group of Levites go through the camp. They kill about 3,000 defectors to to this other god, this golden calf. And then Moses returns back to the mountain to plead for the forgiveness of sins for Israel. And God says this. After he relents from his anger... He decides not to hand down this judgment of death on the entire Israelite nation. He tells Moses this. He says, now go and lead the people to the place I told you about, speaking of the promised land. My angel will go before you. Not only does he tell them that you're free to go, you're free to go to the promised land, but I'm also going to send you someone to lead you. But on the day I settle accounts... I will hold them accountable for their sin. Now, sometimes we skip over that a little bit. And we think, well, wait a second. Was God being unjust by not handing down the sentence of death that everyone deserved in that camp? Or was that justice deferred? Because a God who is just cannot not be just. He still has to be true to his character. He still has to be true to his sovereignty, to his goodness, to his holiness. He still has to be just. But what he just does right there is he defers the justice for a little while. Well, according to the Israelites, it was a long while. We know that deferred justice, the one who received the full punishment of that judgment and justice to have come on his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. The man that none of the nation of Israel at that time would recognize. It's almost as if we need to recognize that any grace that is given in the Old Testament, it's being paid, the justice is being paid forward to Jesus. Does that make sense? That God still has to be just, 
But in his moments of grace, specifically in the Old Testament, if there's judgment, if there's justice to be had, and he doesn't, he doesn't slam down the gavel at that moment, then any punishment that is due those people at that time in the Old Testament is then carried forward to an all-saving Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, it wasn't just in that moment when God said, I'll settle accounts eventually. He also told Moses in Exodus 34, he said, the Lord, speaking of himself, is a compassionate and gracious God. I'm slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving in iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity to the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And it wasn't just to Moses. It wasn't just Moses that understood God's deferred justice. Paul also understood that. And sometimes we can read through the script, read through scriptures that Paul wrote and look over these things and realize that, wow, that's what he was talking about. In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, God presented Jesus, Paul says, God presented Jesus as the mercy seat by his blood. Through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint... God passed over the sins previously committed. Now we have a New Testament account, a New Testament apostle that's, that proclaims that God did defer justice at a time. And he allowed all of that deferred justice to fall on the shoulders of his son Jesus Christ at the cross. So for us to think that Jesus died for just us, our generation, or the generations that came after Jesus, we're, we're badly mistaken. Because a just God who has been handing down his, his, um, his, his justice throughout Scripture has been paying forward the punishment all of those centuries knowing that his son Jesus Christ was going to be the one to receive the punishment. So if all of the justice deferred or the grace shown in the Old Testament is then paid forward to Jesus, then what does that mean for us as New Testament disciples, followers of Christ, then that means that any grace that's given to us, the justice that we deserve is now paid backwards to Jesus. Because He has paid the price. He's taken the full load of God's justice. Everything that we deserve, everything that... that, that the people and the nations in the Old Testament received, they deserved. And you know what? You and I deserve the exact same thing. And in God's act of grace, today, He allows His justice to have been absorbed by an all-loving 
and an all-sacrificial Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul states in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, that God presented him, speaking of Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. He also states in Romans chapter 5, verse 8 through 10, God proves His own love for us for while we were still sinners. In the midst of our disobedience, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by His blood, will we be saved through Him from wrath, the justice of God. The wrath of God that people were susceptible to all the way to the point of Jesus Christ on the cross. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? You see, it helps us as we're reading through Scripture to consider not only a sovereign God, one that acts according to His glory, according to His total control, but one that is also just throughout Scripture. That whatever sentence is handed down, whatever happens to, to humanity throughout Scripture, is something that was duly due to them because of their offense towards God. And for each one of us, we are actually do the same thing. But because of grace shown to us in Jesus Christ, God was able to have grace at times in the Old Testament, defer that justice to Jesus forward. And for us, as He shows us grace, He reminds us of the promise that the justice that we are due has already been paid by Jesus. Isn't it amazing to see Jesus firmly in the center of all of it? Receiving the justice for those showed grace in the Old Testament. Receiving justice for the grace God showed to us as New Testament disciples. I hope that helps some as we're reading through those tough passages in Scripture. As we're going, as we're scratching our head going, why? Why? Well, because God is just. He's the offended. And this is what humanity is due according to their offense to Him. But God is a gracious and a compassionate and a loving and a merciful God. And He proved that by giving us His Son, Jesus Christ. Not just us, but giving the world, giving creation, giving all of humanity a Savior in Jesus Christ. And just as God had in all time planned for Jesus to be central in receiving that justice and providing the blanket of grace, from Genesis to Revelation. Therefore, we also, as a church, we centralize Jesus 
our Lord and Savior on our worship time. And therefore, each week, that's why we keep communion, the Lord's Supper, as a central part of what we do. Because God had always expected that Christ would be in the center of history, would be in the center of his salvific works. And therefore, we keep him in the center of our worship. This morning, as we consider God's justice, I hope that it resonates a little bit with us about the things, about the the sentence that each of us are due. But I also hope that it resonates even more the grace that God has shown us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And just as LaGuardia had taken the $10 out of his pocket to pay a fine that the little old man couldn't pay, receive the payment, and consider, consider his judgment paid in full. God did that for each one of us. And he did that for each and every person that put their faith in him throughout history. From Genesis 1-1 until right now. And into the future until Christ comes again. Father, I pray that as we take this cup and this bread, Lord, that we remember the centrality of Christ. Lord, that the, the judgment and the justice that have needed to be offered by yourself because you are true and perfect and you cannot operate outside of your perfect values and characteristics. Lord, that justice was still handed down. But yet Jesus did it in our place. He didn't just do it in our place, but he did it in the place of every person throughout history and into the future that put their faith in him as Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray this morning that you continue to Steer our thoughts, our minds, our spirits, Lord, as we read your word. Lord, open your word up, Lord, like, like a flower that gets more and more beautiful, Lord, as your hands become involved in revealing the beauty of the inside. Father, may we see always Jesus Christ in the center of the story. Lord, as we take the bread and the cup this morning, keep him centralized to us, our church, and to us, Lord, as disciples, as sons and daughters, called back to yourself through his sacrificial blood. Christ, I pray.